The Bible has more than 400 references to war, another 176 uh, instances of battle. Now, of course, many of these are references to, to spiritual conflict, our personal struggle with sin, but but in the Old Testament especially, we find almost 100 instances of military conflict. Now, these battles range anywhere from minor skirmishes to civil war to right, multinational major conflicts. But of all of the battles that are found in the Bible, the most famous one is not fought between two armies, but between two people. And we find this famous battle in 1 Samuel 17. And the setting is this. Israel's longtime enemy, the Philistines, have invaded. And battle lines have been drawn. But to make matters worse, the Philistines have a secret weapon. Here's what we read in the first four verses of, of 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. All right, so you have the Philistines who have encamped on one side of the valley, and the Israelites have set up their camp on the other side of the valley. And I'll put up a picture here of the, the valley of Elah as it appears today. Uh, and so you can kind of imagine the two camps set up on either side here. But instead of the two armies meeting in the valley and, and engaging in battle and fighting each other, the Philistines were sending out a special champion to challenge the Israelites, to choose someone to take him on in individual combat. Now, this seems kind of weird to us, all right? It's, it's unheard of in modern warfare. Right? Can you imagine Vladimir Zelensky calling uh, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, and saying, hey, look, we have been fighting for more than a year now. You've not done so well, your troop morale is low, and, and you're losing face in the eyes of the world and in your own country. Meanwhile, my country's infrastructure is in shambles, my people are hurting. So instead of having this thing just drag on and on, how about I pick out my best guy, you pick out your best guy, and they take each other on man-to-man -man in a 12-round pay-per-view Grudge match to the death. Winner takes all. All right. If my guy wins, you get all of your people out of Ukraine. You give back the Crimea, which you took back uh, several years ago. And you promise to leave us alone. But if your guy wins, then we surrender. You keep all of the territory. And that way we'll know, you know, whose side God really is on. Well, this sort of thing was common practice in many ancient cultures. Each side picks out their best guy, their champion, 
and they would fight to the death. And of course, this was seen as a way that that the gods could declare who the winner was, because whichever one won, obviously their gods were more powerful. This also helps explain why David saw Goliath's challenge and Israel's refusal to respond to that challenge as an insult, not just to King Saul or Israel, but as an insult to God. Because Goliath wasn't just defying King Saul or Israel, he was defying Yahweh. First Samuel uh, 17, verses 8 through 11 says this, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. But he wasn't just defying Israel or Saul. He was defying God. And this goes on for 40 days. Every day, Goliath comes out and defiantly shouts this challenge to the Israelites. And they can do nothing but stand there and just shake in their sandals, right? I can't take him, can you? Ain't no way I'm going out there. I've got a wife and kids. Well, surely somebody will answer him. Well, you'd have to be an idiot to go out there. I mean, look at the guy. He'd squash you like a mosquito. Excuse me, I've got to go change my shorts. Well, on day number 40, Something was different. Something has changed. There was somebody new in the camp. Now, David is still a young shepherd boy tending his father's sheep, but he's been sent on an errand, a supply run to deliver some grain and bread and cheese to the front lines. And so the, for the first time, David hears Goliath's challenge. And this is what we read about his response in verse 26. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Like in David's view, he's not defying King Saul. He's not defying Israel. He's defying God. And David thinks, you'd have to be an idiot to defy God in this sort of way. And so David begins to ask some questions, do some searching around, and word quickly gets back to King Saul, who sends for David. And in verse 32, David tells Saul with great confidence, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Now, we know how the story ends, don't we? I mean, most people who've even never been to church or ever cracked open a Bible know something of the story of David and Goliath. It's kind of become the quintessential symbol of the underdog facing down the ultimate foe. And this is one of those stories that you first learn in Sunday school. It's an all-time favorite. But this story is just as important for adults as it ever was for us as kids. And why? Well, 
because when you're a kid, giants are the stuff of imagination and stories. But when you're an adult, your giants are real. Oh, they might not be literal giants, but they're real. And we all face giants in life, seemingly impossible obstacles, overwhelming odds, situations where our defeat seems all but assured. And maybe you're facing a giant right now in your life, maybe a financial giant. Debt has continued to pile up, and now you're beginning to fear you're never going to get that debt paid off, right? You dread every phone call because it's probably just another collector. You hate getting the mail because it's just another notice. Maybe it's a relationship giant. You've got this years-long bond that has been torn apart, and you wonder if it can ever be restored or a marriage that's grown cold and distant, a child that refuses to listen, no matter what you say or do, a dear friend that has stabbed you in the back. Maybe your giant is silent and unseen, a, a habit you can't stop, a sin that has you in its grasp. You can't control it, it controls you. You've said no a hundred times, you've sworn never again, but time and time again, you stumble in defeat in the face of temptation. Now, there are all kinds of such giants, giants of fear, of regret, chronic illness, and anything that Satan can use to tear you down, uh, to tear you apart, that can become a giant in your life. And your giant is whatever makes you want to run in the other direction. It transforms your hopes into fears, your dreams into nightmares. Your giant taunts you in the battlefield of your mind, and in that valley between faith and doubt, you feel powerless. So what kind of giant are you facing? Once you know who your giant is, that's where you need to listen to the story of David and Goliath. Because this story is needed to, to, to help us adjust our focus so that we can face our giants. And I think this story gives us a, a new vision and a new focus so that when we look through our mind's eye, at the through the lens of this story, our giants no longer seem so big. Now, this story has long been called David and the Giant, but... I want you to think of it as the story of David and the dwarf. You see, the thing about giants is this. It's all in what you look at. Now, Saul and all of the other Israelite soldiers, they are all focused on Goliath. This, this hulk of a man who's over nine feet tall. And when they focus on Goliath, he seems like this insurmountable foe. But David walks into the scene, and he's focused on something entirely different. David is focused on the size of his God. Right? And compared to the size of God, Goliath isn't so big. And that's exactly what we should do when we're facing our own giants. We need to focus on the size of God instead of some of these other things that we focus on. For instance, we should focus on the size of our God, not the size of the giant. Now, make no mistake, 
right? Goliath was an imposing presence. Here's how he's described in verses five through seven. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. I like how Eugene Peterson sets the scene here. The air is heavy with hostility. There isn't a man on either side of the valley who isn't hefting a spear, sharpening a sword, or readying for battle. The valley of Elah is a cauldron in which fear and hate and arrogance have been stirred and cooked for weeks into what is now a volatile and lethal brew. And at the center of this storm is a man whose presence overpowers the spiked force of spears and the glint of swords because he stands well over nine foot tall. His arm span would have been nearly 10 foot, right? And that would have given him a reach of almost five feet. And if you add to that the length of the sword and its reach, right, no wonder nobody thought they could get near him. Goliath's coat of armor in our terms and ancient weights and measures can be difficult to pin down because these changed these amounts varied from place to place and from time to time. But scholars estimate anywhere from 125 pounds to 200 pounds. And that's just the armor. Right? And he's also wearing a helmet and he's wearing greaves. The head of his spear alone weighed between 15 and 20 pounds. All right. Now imagine this behemoth of a man able to twirl the spear around like it's nothing but a baton. In addition to all of this, Goliath has an armor bearer who goes in front of him carrying a large shield to protect him from uh, enemy arrows. All right, to say that Goliath's presence was imposing, that's a giant understatement. He could make a coward of the bravest of men. But David, throughout this whole passage, never once refers to Goliath as a giant because he isn't focused on Goliath's size. He doesn't refer to his size or his appearance at all. What David does focus on is the size of God. And David's confidence was all about what he believed God could do. Listen to verses 45 through 47. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. And all of those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Right? That's God confidence. David is all about what God can do. You see, to David, the prospect of fighting Goliath wasn't a... a, a proposition of 
David versus Goliath. It was a proposition of Goliath versus God. And compared to God, Goliath was nothing but a wimpy little dwarf. Now, when you focus on the giant in your life, and I'm not going to lie, just like Goliath was an imposing presence, the giant in your life is pretty big and scary too. And when you focus on that, you're going to feel overwhelmed, right? You're not going to see any way to overcome it. But when you change your focus to God and his greatness, his power, his majesty, then your giants begin to shrink in size until they become quite manageable. Too often, and I'm guilty of this too, but too often we focus only on the size of our giant. And our weights and measures are all about how big the giant is. And that's when we forget how big God is. But this is the same God that the Apostle Paul would describe in one of his letters as immeasurable, unsearchable, and beyond tracing out. Right? There is not a tape measure in existence that you could use to measure the power of God. And compared to God, any giant, any challenge, any failure, any sin, any temptation is just a wimpy dwarf. And so that's why we have to focus on the size of our God, not the size of our own giant. Secondly, like David, we have to focus on the size of our God and not the size of our inadequacy. Focus on the size of your God, not the size of your inadequacy. Now imagine David. He's nothing but a shepherd boy. His build is slight. I mean, later on, he tries on the king's armor. It doesn't fit him. He's not yet fully developed. He's got no military experience, no formal training, well, except for one thing, right? He spent countless hours using his sling out in the fields watching sheep. I mean, how many broom trees has David used for target practices? How many predators has David driven off with a well-slung stone? But this is something that nobody else took into account, only God. Nobody would have counted that as military training any more than we would consider a kid plinking with a 22 on a farm uh, any to be an expert sniper. And you could list a hundred reasons why David couldn't face Goliath, and not one reason why he could, except for one. He had God on his side. And Nobody would have blamed David. Nobody would have questioned David had he just dropped off his supplies and went back home. No one would have thought any less of him. Had David said, you know what? It's not a job for me. Leave it to the professionals. By any measure, David was inadequate to the task. But here's the thing. God always uses inadequate people. I mean, throughout Scripture is story after story of, of God using inadequate people. Because God is able to do more than we ask or imagine. He uses people that didn't have enough ability, enough knowledge, enough experience, strength enough to do the job. They didn't have the right background, the right resume, the right heritage, but God uses them anyway. 
And we always have all sorts of reasons and excuses of why we can't face our giants. And we say, well, if only I was better able to do this, if only I had more of that, if only I had that talent or that ability or, or this spiritual gift, then, then I could do something. But we let our own inadequacy keep us from facing the giants in our lives. And so we sit over here on the sideline, filled with fear, letting that giant come back and taunt us day after day after day. And we'll always be able to think of more reasons why we can't face our giant than why we can. And there may be a hundred reasons, a hundred good reasons why you can't pay off that debt and get back on your feet. There may be a hundred reasons why you can't save your marriage and rebuild that relationship. There may be a hundred reasons why you can't stop that sin in your life and find victory. And there may only be one reason why you can't. But that reason is that God is on your side. And that one reason trumps all of those others. If it is the right thing to do, and it's what God calls you to do, then he can enable you to do it and bring down that giant in your life. Because it's not about what you can accomplish on your own. It's about what you're willing to let God do through you. And it's about how much you're willing to trust him. And so, like David, we have to focus on the size of our God, not the size of our inadequacy. The third adjustment we need to make in our focus is that we focus on the size of our God, not the size of others' expectations. If we always let the thoughts and opinions of other people be the deciding factor, we're never going to stand up to the giants in our lives. Because there's always going to be too many voices telling you that you can't do it, and here's why you can't do it. And too few voices telling you that you can. And you can't let the expectations of the many be the measure of your faith of what God can do in you and through you. David had plenty of voices telling him he can't do it, all right? His oldest brother questioned his real motives for being there. In verse 28, he tells David, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? All right, notice he, he belittles David's job. It's insignificant. It's unimportant. And he accuses him of shirking his responsibility. He goes on. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. You're just here to rubberneck, you little runt. And then you've got King Saul, who was quite blunt in his assessment of David's chances in verse 33. You're not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy, and he's been a fighting man from his youth. So King Saul didn't think he could do it. And it's not just Saul and David's older brother. Every soldier along that line would have thought David couldn't do it. But David did not allow their expectations to define his possibilities. Now, it's always a good idea to seek wise counsel, but we've got to be able to tell the difference between good counsel and bad advice. There's always going to be plenty of naysayers who will give you faithless counsel. 
They will give you opinions that take no account into what God can do. Let me ask you a question. Who do you go to for advice? One of the most decision, most important decisions that you make before you make any big choice in your life is whose counsel do you seek? So make sure you choose wisely who offers you counsel. I also find it interesting that in this story, you've got King Saul, who's not willing to go fight Goliath himself. And he said, there's no way that David could do it. You can't go fight him. But he was willing to tell David how to do it. Look at verses 38 and 39. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic, and he put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I won't do it, David, and I don't think you can do it, but here's how you should do it. And isn't that how it always goes? There's always people who aren't willing to do it. They're not willing to help. And they'll tell you, you can't do it. But then they're going to tell you how to do it. I, don't listen to those people. They will only keep you from realizing God's purpose in your life. Ignore those voices. Don't focus on the size of other people's expectations. Focus on the size of God. That's what David did. Now, I'm going to wrap up the story of David and Goliath next week. There's so much more here I want to dig into. But I want to close out this message with some observations as to why David could have such a big view of God. And I think we get a glimpse of this in the Psalms that he wrote. First, David saw God as the omnipotent creator. He's the all-powerful maker of everything. And so when God looked at the, the grandeur of creation, he considered the majesty of the creator. And so when he saw the grandeur of the mountains, the majesty of the oceans, the vastness of space and the stars overhead, the power of a storm, and he remembered that, hey, God made all of this. God controls all of this. That's when David understood that everything else is small by comparison. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Psalm 65, verses 5 through 8, you answer us with awesome deeds of righteousness, O God, our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth and all of the farthest seas, who form the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength, who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of the nations. Those living far away, fear your wonders. Where morning dawns and evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. So he sees God's power in creation. Secondly, David also saw God's omniscient knowledge. God is all-knowing. And David understood that not only did God know everything about him, he knew everything, period. There's nothing that could be known that God didn't know. He was a God who knew the past, the present, and the future. In Psalm 147, 4 through 5, David sings, He determines the number of the stars. He calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. Psalm 33, verses 13 and 14. 
from heaven, the Lord looks down and he sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on the earth. Right? He sees everything. He knows everything. Thirdly, David not only knew that God was omnipotent, all-powerful, and omniscient, he was all-knowing, but he also understood that God was omnipresent spirit. Right? He is an everywhere God. He's all-present. There's nowhere God was uh, that were, there was nowhere where God was not. God was everywhere that David went to guide him, to protect him, to comfort him. Listen to Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. It's a God who's everywhere. When you are facing your giant, where is your focus? What are, what are you looking at? Are you looking at the giant? Are you looking at your own inadequacies? Are you looking at the expectations of others? Or do you keep your view on God and who God is and what God is like and how big he is and what he can do? And how do you see God when you look at him? And when you learn to see God as he is, you're going to find that the giants in your life become much, much smaller. Thank you, and God bless.